Heavenly Father, let us fix our eyes on you. Throw off everything that entangles. Help us to understand who you are and to wholeheartedly follow you. Amen. And if you have been with us the last few weeks, this might feel like deja vu. Um, or, or deja vu. <laughs> yeah, sorry. How do we say it? But seriously, haven't we um, heard this same passage before? This Jesus predicting his own death? Um, and you'd be right, it's the third time in a short space that Jesus predicts what's going to happen on the cross. And it's, it's also the third time that the disciples haven't got it. And that alone tells us it probably bears um, close consideration, doesn't it? This third prediction... Um, in, in Mark 10:32, if you've got it there, it sets the scene for what follows, and it, in some ways, it is similar to the first two. It's emphasised in verses 32 and 33. Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. And in the Old Testament, we kind of, if, if you've read, you might recognise that Jerusalem is the, the climactic place where God's rightful King will enter. And so, I think when Jesus mentions this, as he does twice the disciples are picturing more of the palm fronds and the cheering crowds than they are the mocking and the thorny crown. That the Messiah's path to glory went through the cross is incomprehensible. But the third prediction also builds. um, And the addition is that it it focuses on on Jesus' suffering, on the breadth and the depth of it. We see everyone is involved, the priests, the teachers of the law, the Gentiles, everyone is culpable in it. And Jesus' suffering is great, mocking, spitting, flogging, death. An astute participator in one of our Explore courses noticed in the Gospels that more time is given to the suffering of Jesus to the actual death. Um, his humiliation and suffering is total and it's no wonder that we're given an insight into his followers' feelings in verse 32 as well. They're astonished and afraid. But Jesus is not quite done preparing them. He needs them to know that to follow Jesus is to serve and to suffer. But even as Jesus enlightens them, the disciples, they remain in the dark because they still haven't quite got that the earthly kingdom is different to the heavenly one. Like Mark said earlier, they think Jesus' rule meant ease and power for them. And with this in mind, James and John, they go to Jesus and they say, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. You can see it's kind of a perversion of what King Herod says to his daughter back in Mark 6. Jesus' response is gentle. What do you want me to do for you? It's a wild question when you think about it, but it's a far wiser response than Herod's up to half my kingdom. And we see why it's wiser when the disciples respond. Um, They're thinking along the half a kingdom lines. And this question, um, what do you want me to do for you? We see it pop up later, so hold it in your mind. So what do James and John want? Um, Not wisdom, not double portion of the spirit or anything like that. Uh, They want, I'll paraphrase it, the Mitchell version of... Sorry. They say, um, we don't want much, you might not even notice, but we want the ultimate glory, honour and prestige of reigning with you in heaven, seated in the places of greatest honour. And I can just imagine them peering over their shoulders at the other disciples sheepishly as they say this. It it seems a ridiculous request, right? We'd never say this, but but fundamentally it's, it's a human request. They're just putting into words the natural desire of all of us. We see power... We want the benefits. 
We're the prodigal son who wants the inheritance without the relationship. We are easily entitled and entranced. In its basest form, this is wanting the gifts of God without knowing the giver. In its regular disguise, it looks like using others to better ourselves. Its most heinous scheme is to convince us that we deserve it. We deserve the place of honour in heaven. Heaven is lucky to have us. We surely have earned God's love. But no, as we've heard in the last few weeks, this is not the way of Jesus. But his way is completely unintuitive for our sinful hearts and we, like the disciples, we need to hear, once again, Jesus' response. You can see in verse 41 that the other disciples hear what's going on and they're indignant. We're unsure if they're indignant because of what they've said or because they didn't get in first. Um, But we, we see Jesus calls them together. Where human ambition divides them, Jesus brings unity. In 42, he says, um, you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles, they lord it over them. Their high officials exercise authority over them, but not so with you. And this is the radical bit, isn't it? Instead, whoever wants to be great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be the first must be slave of all. See, ambition isn't wrong. Jesus doesn't say stop all thoughts of it, but he redefines it and he flips it on its head. He says, kingdom greatness, it's like a game of limbo. How low can you go to serve others? It's an upside down kingdom. To follow Jesus is to elevate others at the expense of yourselves. Right ambition is to want to see Jesus glorified, to see him made so big, there's no room for anything else. Whereas wrong ambition wants ourselves glorified. And so when it comes to serving, um, that's the test, right? Do we do it for our own sake or for the sake of others? Will you put others first? Will you serve? And even if what you do goes completely unseen, completely unnoticed, wholly unrewarded, will you still do it? Will you give with no thought of return? That's the test of the heart. But we need to because living to exalt yourself, as we read on, is to be spiritually blind. Whereas humble service leads to the kingdom of God. Um, I don't think we are as crass as the disciples in this. I don't know anyone who has consciously asked this of Jesus, to sit at his right and left hand, or at least anyone who would admit to it. Um, But because it's not as obvious, it doesn't mean that we don't do the same thing. I think Jesus repeats it three times because we have these same hearts. Um, And we do it in, in many ways, don't we? We do this when we're more concerned about how it feels to be at church here than we are concerned that there are thousands around us desperately in need of Jesus, whose eyes are blind to the only thing with the power to save. When we choose what is easy and comfortable over what is right. It's our concern for ourselves that cripples our concern for the lost. When we forget that heaven and hell are real and everyone is headed to one of them. It is worth any cost to see the lost saved. It's forgetting that it is the fools on earth who give of themselves with no thought of return who are vindicated in heaven. This is hard, but I hope it's not deflating. It shouldn't be, because while not 
downplaying the difficulty, doesn't this bring great delight? Doesn't it deliver you from hopelessness? There is dignity in the dirty work. There's reward amongst all the wreckage. And this frees you from the dissatisfaction that comes from living for the approval of man and seeking your own self-worth. There is a a crisis of purpose at the moment. I spoke at a school camp with the year 11 and 12s a couple of weeks ago and it it was pretty evident. There was a sense of hopelessness, unsure what to do that would be worthwhile. But understanding this, it blessedly gives you the opposite problem, doesn't it? There are too many worthwhile things everywhere you look, opportunities to serve our God and serve others. And again, this is not to say it's easy. I don't say it flippantly. Uh, Truly understood, it will be accompanied with suffering. We know that. Uh, Jesus says this to James and to John, verse 39. He says, you will suffer like I do. And they did. James was killed. John exiled to Patmos. And while sometimes being sent to an island doesn't sound too bad to me, um, I know it wasn't good. But the Bible is clear. It doesn't sugarcoat it. For the Christian, suffering is par for the course, Um, more so than it is for the golfer, where, yeah, par for me is unattainable. But why is it like this? Um, Well, it's because it's the way of Jesus, right? Verse 38, he says, Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptised with the baptism I am baptised with? This um, image of the cup, it's in the Old Testament to show um, that he mentions in verse 38, it means to drink of God's judgment it is a terrifying thing jesus did it jesus's baptism that he speaks of here is to be washed with blood the greatest glory seen in the most humiliating death and that leads us back to verse 45 for the son of man did not come to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many it's no wonder the disciples were confused when they heard that. Um, the Son of Man is this image we see in, in Daniel 7 in the Old Testament of the glorious ancient of days and the clouds of heaven, dominion over all. It's an image of God. That Surely God can't suffer, but he did. And that's what makes this so radical. Other religions claim to bring a word from God, but only the God of the Bible comes to us in weakness and flesh. Other religions say that if we try hard enough, maybe you can be a little bit like God. Only the God of the Bible becomes one of us. And he died a death so horrible, it really should have been the end of Christianity. This is a terrible sales pitch. Come and follow me. It's going to be really hard. And surely those who saw that example, they would, they would flee. No, thank you. No one would follow the one who'd been made such an example of. Follow my example, he says, as he was spat on and nails driven into his hands and feet. Except, of course, the disciples did. They saw that and still followed him. They did because they saw that Jesus didn't stay dead, but he rose again, defeating death, flipping life upside down, transforming what it means to live, to serve, to have purpose and dignity, to know love, they saw Jesus' towering power and they saw his stooping love and then they gave their lives in service. But why did Jesus humiliate himself in this way? Well, 
out of love. It was to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus' death was not just a martyr's death, not just an inspirational death. There's been many of those for causes both good and evil. No, Jesus' death was much more than that. It was a substitutionary death in our place. As J.C. Ryle put it, when he died, he died for us. When he suffered, he did so in our place. When he hung on the cross, he was there as our substitute. When his blood flowed, it was the price of our souls. Because of our rebellion of God, it is us who deserve to drink the cup of God's judgment. On the cross, Jesus did it for us. Private Phillips um, was fighting in World War II. 1994, he was, he was shot while in Italy. He lay on the ground, bleeding out. Tom Torrance, a chaplain, found him and it was clear Phillips only had minutes to live. And there was one question he wanted to know, one question he put to Tom Torrance, is God really like Jesus Christ? And he asked that because when you're about to meet your maker, you need to know who you are meeting. And Private Phillips wanted to know that the God he was about to meet was not distant or cold and uncaring, but knew both his suffering and pain. The chaplet answered, There is no God except the God revealed by Jesus Christ. The only God there is is the God who Jesus reveals, the God who poured out his life for you. This is the Jesus we need to see. This is the one we need to recognise and follow. But this can't happen without a miracle. And as we read on, we get one. We see a blind man healed, someone recognise Jesus and show what it means to follow him. As Jesus and the disciples continue on, a blind man, Bartimaeus, who begs by the road, heard Jesus pass by and cries out. He's shushed by those with Jesus. He doesn't want to hear from you, but he, he just cries out louder. Son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus stops, calls the man to him and asks the same question he put to the disciples. What do you want me to do for you? Bartimaeus' answer, different to the disciples. Teacher, I want to see. Go, said Jesus, your faith has healed you. And immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus along the road. Blindness here, as it is earlier in Mark and in John, it's a metaphor for being unable to see Jesus for who he is, spiritual blindness. It's the natural state of all of us. But Bartimaeus came to Jesus blind helpless and dependent, and he leaves fully restored. How? Well, he shows us exactly what it means to follow Jesus in three ways. Firstly, he sees Jesus rightly. He calls Jesus the son of David in verse 48. He recognises his kingship and authority, his power to save. We too must call on him. He doesn't just see Jesus rightly. He sees himself rightly. Remember what he calls out. Have mercy on me. He is dependent on Jesus' mercy. He sees his complete helplessness and inability to help himself. He does not try to earn his cure. He does not see Jesus' authority and say, give me some of that. No, he trusts in Jesus' mercy. And the cry of mercy is the sweetest sound to Jesus' ears. It's there throughout the Psalms. It's what we all must do. 
He is healed. Jesus is merciful and mighty to save. And in response, Bartimaeus responds rightly. Immediately, he leaves everything to follow Jesus. He leaves his cloak behind and he does not turn back. Once healed, he followed Jesus along the same road. Why would he turn away from the one who has the power and compassion to restore? That's foolishness. We might, we might quickly think, yes, yeah, sure, but he didn't have much to leave behind, just a, just a cloak. But boy, neither do we. Not when we understand what Jesus has to offer. Jesus restores Bartimaeus, gives him right vision, enables him to see who Jesus is and what matters. Don't receive your sight from Jesus only to go back to your beggar's cloak. Without Christ, we are all blind. We need to cry for help, fall on Jesus' mercy, and we know that he will stop, he will cure, and he will direct us in the way. This repeated offer from Jesus, um, what do you want me to do for you? It shows we're meant to compare the disciples' response to Bartimaeus' response. And I think it extends straight to us as well. What do you want Jesus to do for you? And I think the real question there is, who will you be like? You'll be like one of the two, right? The disciples or Bartimaeus. You'll be one of those seeking your own honour, following Jesus for your own comfort. Or you'll be the one who cries out for mercy and when he receives it, wholeheartedly follows Jesus. And this is why we tell people the gospel with such confidence because of Jesus' power to save and his great mercy. And Glenn Scrivener explains the human condition as that of being a man who has fallen down a deep hole. Try as he might, he can't climb out. A mystic or a philosopher comes to the top of the hole and says, there's, there's no hole, it's an illusion. And then he leaves. A religious leader stops by and says, well... You should have listened to me. And then he leaves. A social media influencer comes and says, thoughts and prayers, and then leaves. Politician comes, looks down and says, ah, this hole is the other party's fault. They should have filled that in a long time ago. The pragmatist says, just, just climb up, climb up the side. The cynic says, you're probably better off down there, mate. The idealist says, look at the bright side, could be worse. But they all leave. The man is left with a bunch of good advice and no way out. All the messages of the world we get fall in there, don't they? They give some variation of that. None of them truly help. Finally, a friend arrives. What does the friend do? You can probably guess. The friend hears the cry. He draws near, dives in, gets hurt, gets dirty, but he hoists the man onto his shoulders and lifts him out. Jesus is that friend. Call on him for mercy and when he lifts you out of this hole you could not get out of yourself, well, for the sake of your own soul, leave everything behind and follow him. Where else have you to go when he alone has words of eternal life? I think a right response to hearing this is to call on God in prayer. 
to draw near to the one who is drawn near to us, then that's what we're going to do now.